This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Both poles are strangely hot. Eastern Australia just had biblical rains, the Pacific Northwest too. Storms and record numbers of tornadoes hammered the U.S. Midwest. This sounds like a good time to figure out what is going on. From the results of thousands of scientific papers, experts at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just issued the last part of their report, which they do every five years. It's called the Working Group 3 report, but honestly, who cares? The world is sick, we're broke, and we're at war right now. Why is the weather strange so soon, though? And what does the IPCC say we can do about catastrophic climate change? Paul Beckwith is the Canadian climate scientist who tracks all this. Paul has attended of the top international climate conferences. He makes summaries of science for the rest of us in his YouTube video channel. From Ottawa, Canada, Paul Beckwith, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure to uh, have a chat with you about the state of the world's uh, climate and everything else that we can think of. Well, okay. Uh, bring us up to date on a couple of the calls that you just had before we reached you. Yes, most of the listeners are probably aware of these um, massive heat waves occurring simultaneously on the Arctic in in the in Antarctica. I, I just got off a call with this woman called Meta Spencer in Toronto, who has a show. Uh, you know, talking with climate scientists, etc. So we had a good hour-long chat, her and myself and uh, Peter Wadhams, about, uh, you know, what's been going on in the polls. And, uh, you know, it's actually a bit very concerning because back um, a while ago when there was all this flooding in British Columbia, it was these atmospheric rivers, the three or four of them that occurred over the space of several weeks, causing horrendous, horrendous amounts of rainfall on the elevated regions, causing landslides, shutting roads, flooding out uh, a lot of regions in B.C. So that was an atmospheric river phenomenon. And at the time I said, well, geez, what if these things go up into the the poles? What if they go up into the Arctic and Antarctica? How will the ice survive that type of situation? And then back just a month or two ago, Australia has been having tremendous amounts of flooding in uh, the area of Brisbane and now in Sydney. It's still ongoing. And these are atmospheric rivers that are coming in and dumping huge amounts of rain. In fact, they said, you know, comparing to the Australian uh, public, they said that the amount of rain in the atmospheric river, so it's a long ribbon, can be several thousand kilometers long, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 kilometers wide, about one to three kilometers above the surface of the earth. It's, uh, you know, laden with water vapor, which can condense into clouds and carries enormous amounts of water. Um, in fact, the one over Brisbane was estimated to have a volume of water about 16 times the volume of water that is in filling, that fills Sydney Harbour. You know, that, that was, I guess, a lot of Australians know the size of volume or, you know, the apparent, the size roughly of Sydney Harbour. So that was a comparison, 16 times. So it's enormous amounts of water, and that was dropped in very short periods of time over Brisbane and also uh, now Sydney. So these atmospheric rivers are moving northward and southward. They're moving poleward, and what happened is they simultaneously reached 
parts of the Arctic and parts of Antarctica, causing record temperature rises up to 50 degrees Celsius warmer than normal in parts of Antarctica and 40 degrees warmer than normal in parts of the Arctic. Now, because these things are laden with water vapor in the regions that went above zero, there was rain on snow events, rain on ice events, and there was a massive calving um, of a glacier in Antarctica that occurred simultaneously uh, with the heat wave in Antarctica. And that was mostly, you know, March 17th, March 18th of this year. And in the Arctic, you know, basically the week from about March 11th uh, for, you know, a week, week and a half, uh, we had the simultaneous heat waves. And that's the really unusual thing. Normally, you know, we'll have the heat wave in, in one pole, not in the other pole. You know, one pole is in winter, the other is in summer. But right now we're in the shoulder season. So, you know, of course, in the northern hemisphere, we're going from the winter into the spring. And in the southern hemisphere, we're going from uh, summer into fall and and uh, winter. So this is the shoulder season where both of these events occurred. In the past, these events have mostly been happening, you know, we'll get the heat wave in the summer, whichever hemisphere is in the summer, you know, over the ice. But now it's happening in the shoulder season. So there's lots of things that are happening now that, you know, many scientists will say unexpected, never thought this would happen. People that have studied glaciology in Antarctica for years just can't believe that this actually happened and said it would never happen, you know, until it actually did. Similar to people in the Arctic, although, you know, the Arctic has been getting many heat waves uh, in the past. And so it's not such a surprising thing now for the Arctic. So so there's that. And then there's also, um, I think the main thing that we'll be talking about is the Working Group 3 uh, IPCC report that just came out on mitigation. It's about 3,000 pages, combined with the Working Group 2 on adaptation that was out about a month ago, and then Working Group 1, the physical science basis. If you add those three together, we have about 10,500 pages in the report. So we can talk about the de- some details um, in the report. I usually like to read them cover to cover. You know, of course, I can't, you know, it takes me some time to do that, but uh, I can talk certainly about the, some of the key points in, in those reports. Definitely want to do that. I want to point out that Sydney has already got the rainfall it would normally get in a year by April 7th, so that gives you an idea of what's happening there. And it reminds me of a conversation I had just last week with American scientist Samantha Stevenson about her study of wildfires and floods, and she told us mega drought has arrived in the U.S. Southwest and it's coming to the Mediterranean, but... Stevenson also warned of mega-pluvial periods in other places, and we really don't know whether these atmospheric rivers are the first harbingers of uh, mega-rainfall periods, not just short events, but long stretches where it's just wetter and wetter and wetter. You know, if we remember back to when Al Gore had his movie, An Inconvenient Truth, one of the things that he emphasized was that, uh, you know, with climate change, we get more and more extreme weather events, so areas that are dry become much drier, and areas that are that, that are generally get decent rainfall become much wetter. But also, we have this uh, I call it weather whiplashing, where you know we might go from an extremely dry period in one location to an extremely wet period the next year, and then back to the dry period. So we get these big, huge swings or whiplash between from one extreme to the other in, in a particular area. 
Well, let's get to that latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The Working Group 3 report has some worrying news for us. For example, greenhouse gas emissions have risen quickly over the past two decades. So for all the green talk and the climate meetings, they say, quote, Global net atmospheric greenhouse gas emissions were 59 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent, uh, plus or minus 6, in 2019. And that is about 12% higher than in 2010, and it's 50% higher than in 1990. So we've kind of doubled our emissions just since 1990, when life wasn't all that different, it seems to me. So what does it really mean, Paul, that we're going in the wrong direction like that? Yeah, that 59 gigaton CO2 equivalent, of course, when you see the equivalent there, that uh, means that it's it's considering all of the other greenhouse gases. It's considering methane, um, nitrous oxide, and they actually, you know, CO2, of course, and they also mention fluorinated uh, compounds. So in order to arrive at the CO2 equivalent, you take, you know, we take a global warming potential of CO2 as one, that's the, the, the base. And then for methane, or or a 100-year time scale, it's 34 times. On a 20-year time scale, it's uh, 76 times. So you you multiply the concentration rise by the global warming potential, and then that gives you a CO2 equivalent number. So so that number is uh, at record high levels. The growth rate, they argue, may slow down a bit, but it's record high levels. And, you know, we need to consider, of course, for the planet, it cares about not just the current greenhouse gas emissions, but the historical emissions as well. And of course, they're not at all evenly distributed on the planet. In fact, the report argued, uh, puts out that the top 10% of all households produce 34 to 45% of the emissions. The bottom 50% or half of all households only produces 13 to 15% of global emissions. And if you look at the historical CO2, cumulative historical CO2 emissions, the least developed countries have produced less than 0.4%, very small chunk of it. The island states, you know, less than about half a percent. So it's rich people, you know, the, the top 10% of income earners and households that produce the vast majority of the greenhouse gas emissions. Well, the good news from the WG3 report is the cost of solar energy has fallen 85% in just the last decade, and wind energy is 55% less expensive. Lithium-ion batteries cost 85% less to produce. And yet it seems this extra wind and solar that is being added around the world is just adding to the growing pyramid of energy use on the planet. It's not like we've reduced energy use. We just add this on top of even more fossil fuels. So the renewables, it's good, but do you think they can ever be enough? I think if we actually got serious about deployment of renewables, that we could completely supplant fossil fuels. It's just that the world is not... The politicians, the powers that be are just not on that path at the moment. I mean, even in Canada, we consider that we have relatively progressive government with the, you know, we've got a collaboration between the the, uh, Trudeau's... uh, Liberal Party and the uh, NDP, Jagmeet Singh's NDP, the Liberals put out the emissions reduction plan, the ERP plan. I think it was just earlier at the beginning of this week where they're putting $9.1 billion more to reduce uh, fossil fuel emissions is the idea, you know, looking at ways to reduce some demand and actually meet climate targets by 2050. But then a few days 
later, so just yesterday, I heard that they've gone and approved the um, a big uh, oil drilling project off Newfoundland, you know, which won't start producing until 2028. So this is absurd. I mean, the report says that even just letting power plants, coal and oil, et cetera, phasing them out and mothballing them after they exceed their planned uh, lifetime is not sufficient. They actually have to be closed. Working power plants based on the fossil fuels have to be closed to have any idea of any hope of, of, of maintaining the, the target limit of temperature. 1.5 is probably is way gone, but even 2 degrees Celsius. So the, the cost, as you mentioned, the cost of the solar, wind, batteries, etc., has plummeted since 2010, and the adoption, the deployment of these technologies for renewables has increased significantly, but it's still only a small fraction of total power, and companies are still, in governments, are still funding fossil fuels to a much, much greater extent. The subsidies on fossil fuels, et cetera, are, are horrendous. So there is some good news in the report. Like it mentions also that 18 countries have uh, reduced their, they've cut their emission over a sustained period. So they look at the production and consumption emissions in a country and they've cut them significantly over, over 10, more than a decade, over 10 years. So there's 18 countries in the world. Meanwhile, you know, that's less than 10% of all of the countries you know, much less than 10% of all of the emissions. So there, it is possible to be done. It's just crazy that it, it's not. And, and meanwhile, you know, this is in sort of, quote, business as usual terms. The world certainly doesn't operate on business as usual. I mean, look at the Russian invasion of the Ukraine in term, from a climate lens. Basically, you build the tanks and guns and equipment from fossil fuels. You use fossil fuels to mobilize and move them as the countries invaded. There's heavy losses of them, plus of the opposition. Destroy, you know, entire cities are shelled and destroyed. And in order to rebuild these cities, think of the carbon footprint. So this is a fossil fuel war. I mean, Russia gets 60% of their income, their exports from fossil fuels. And, uh, you know, Western countries have given, you know, say a billion or two billion of, of arms to the Ukraine in that same time period. They've given $50 billion to Russia to pay for fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, etc. So, you know, any war like this, um, it basically completely throws off any plan. You know, we need cooperation between countries to meet climate goals. And it's funny, I think it was one boxer, uh, Tyson maybe, or Muhammad Ali, one of the famous boxers. He said, everybody has a plan until you're punched in the face. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Canadian climate scientist Paul Beckwith is here, and among other things, we're assessing the latest big climate roundup from the UN group, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. New in this report, at least the world governments are admitting and signing off that after 2030, there isn't a way to get to a safer climate disruption at, at 1.5 degrees. They say this implies that mitigation after 2030 can no longer establish a pathway with less than 67 percent probability to exceed 1.5 degrees C during the 21st century. We've been saying it's now or never for at least a decade even the UN is saying it's now or never if we want to stop the worst of climate change. We've got to do it before 2030. 
Yes. One of the things that uh, Peter Wadhams mentioned in the earlier call was that um, the tone is much different from the IPCC now. And he's actually amazed that the report came out so soon after this working group three, after working group two, which was, you know, I think working group two came out about a, less a month or three weeks, four weeks, you know, not that long ago. But of course, it was overshadowed by the war. I mean, Working Group 2 is all on adaptation and uh, resilience. You know, in order for adaptation and resilience, that's more of a uh, local or regional thing, right? Do you build a seawall? Do you, you know, make larger diameter pipes in your city to handle uh, larger rainfall events? So it's on more of a local scale in terms of both time, you know, maybe in a city and space thing, whereas mitigation in this third report is all about, you know, globally, can we keep the temperature to, to under two degrees? So what they did in this report is they created these, they, they categorized different mitigation scenarios in, in this AR6, Assessment Report 6, and they used these categories C1 to C8. And C1 was basically keeping to 1.5 Celsius with no or limited offshoot, okay? And then C2, you know, C8 is like 4 degrees C rise or something, but C2, C3 are, you know, exceeding 1.5 for a, sh- a certain period of time and then, you know, having your actions reduced back to 1.5, okay? So they're talking, the language is different in the, w- the way they're talking, but they're actually extremely concerned now, and they got out this report. Normally, they, they take their time in, in getting out these reports. They, you know, two might come out, and six months later, three might come out. Well, it was, you know, less than a month. This time, so they. I think the sense of urgency with, within the, the UN group um, might be finally, you know, notching up quite a bit. Also, they talk about, you know, many of the globally emitted greenhouse gas emissions aren't covered under any climate policies or, or, or any plan. You know, they're overlooked. They're not things like, uh, you know, fossil fuel usage by militaries, for example, fossil fuel usage by commercial air travel fossil fuel uses by marine shipping uh, travel, you know, many of those aren't properly or fully accounted for. And the nationally determined contributions that they talk about countries making, you know, there's, there's basically no way that we're, we can hold to 1.5, but they're admitting that, at least in this report. I mean, others like myself have been saying this for years, but finally they're actually, it's in print in this, in this new report. Paul, you've been in the hunt of scientists trying to assess our chances. Where do you think warming will go in the lifetimes of children now? Well, you know, it all depends on what we do and what we don't do. I mean, I, I've i been um, advocating for quite a while for carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere ocean system. I've been advocating not just CO2, but, um, you know, methane, nitrous oxide, you know, anything we can reduce. Also, you know, I've been advocating strongly for solar radiation management, some technologies to actually give us a chance to slash fossil fuel emissions and get rid of subsidies. We don't need time to do that. That could be that that was promised in 2009 by many countries, including the Canadian government, and nothing's been done on that. You know, the government with the, you know, approving a new oil drilling project actually several days after the climate report, the emissions reduction plan was released, you know, covering sector by sector basis. And this this is like deja vu to me because I remember 
you know, another big Canadian climate plan was put out, and then that was followed by a day or two later with the uh, Canadian government buying the, the, the pipeline. I wonder if they do that on purpose. We see this all over. I mean, Biden was very strong at COP26 on the climate and then very shortly after authorized a whole bunch of new oil drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico. And and, uh, we've seen similar green talk in Australia, followed by more and more coal. And one suggestion I found interesting in this report that we may have to move industries that require a lot of energy to places that can make power from safe and renewable resources. I'm thinking of the aluminum industry did this. They moved their manufacturing to Canada for hydropower and Iceland for geothermal power. But to rationalize the world for climate safety like that, a lot of industries, jobs and people and money would have to move where the new energy can be found. I'm doubtful that will happen, but... That's what we need, isn't it? Yes, although with renewables, I mean, they can go many, many different places. It just the place would determine the mix. Um, I did a video just on that a few days ago, but the, you, you mentioned the cost declines of key techs like solar, 85%, wind, 55%, batteries, 85 That's just over the last decade, since 2010 to 2019. You know, there's also the adoption or the deployment of these things, and you can see the exponential growth of that. You know, if you need power in a certain location where the industry is, you, you know, do the studies on wind uh, and uh, solar illumination and, and uh, maybe geothermal, and you get the mix of power from renewables that will supply the power required by that that plant. So I don't think, you know, moving them is necessarily required. You know, once these things are built and that, it takes very little to to run them, right? I mean, what do you have to do to maintain a a huge solar photovoltaic farm or whatever out in the desert, you know, just churning away, creating energy? You don't have to do much to maintain it. You just maybe clean some dust off the... uh, solar panels and you know do, but it, it pretty much runs itself right with wind there's mechanical parts that are moving that can break down and feeding maintenance on these huge wind turbines like like to give you some some of the numbers the share of electricity produced globally in 2020 by photovoltaics about three percent that's after exhibiting exponential growth since 2010. Um, like phenomenal growth. Onshore wind, the share of electricity produced in 2020, about 6%. For offshore wind, it's still less than 1%, although it's growing very, very fast. And then solar power, concentrated solar power. So this is like using regular mirrors to uh, direct light to boilers that are on top of a tower, for example, or, you know, it's concentrating solar power. It could just be using lenses to focus on photovoltaics. So so that's still less than 1% of the mix. So it's about 10% if you add them all together, 10% of of power. But, you know, as the world needs more and more power, more and more, the growth of fossil fuels is still exceeding. It's still the bulk of it. They they still get the bulk of the money for expansion. And it's, it's, uh, it's really shooting ourselves in the foot. The share of, but the share of the passenger vehicle fleet in 2020 for EVs, is still it's about a percent, a percent of, of the uh, total cars. So, so it's heading in the right direction, but these things all need to be, uh, the, the exponential curves need to continue for at least for the next decade in order to displace uh, significant 
you know, measurable amount of fossil fuels. I mean, it, it has to keep continuing at an exponential growth. It's hard to maintain exponential growth. You know, some factors come into play. And then we've had all these different supply chain issues, and those are being worsened by, they were worsened by the, the pandemic and then by the ship getting stuck in the Suez Canal and then and now by the, the war, the Russian uh, the Russian and the Ukraine situation, and then, you know, also not just for industrial goods and things, but also for, you know, things like uh, global food supply, which is one of my biggest concerns, maintaining the, the, the global food supply so that we don't have global famine within, say, five to ten years. You know, I was worried about that just from climate change, and then this, this war happened, and suddenly, you know, the 14% of grains that Ukraine has supplied to the world is just not going to be exported. None of it is going to be used to feed the Ukrainian people. Meanwhile, in the Russian, 17% of grain output in the world say that they won't ship it to countries that are that they're in disagreement with. So, so there you go. And I mean, it, plans can be made, and ideas, and policy, and then you know something like the war happens, and everything is thrown is thrown out of kilter. Well, listeners, Paul has already posted his first impressions about the Working Group 3 report on YouTube. You can find that through paulbeckwith.net. And I also encourage you to find all of his teaching videos really there. It's like going to university, except you can understand what he's talking about, and he's got the graphs and the maps and the whole deal to teach you about climate change, and you didn't learn that in school. We need to learn that now. And I'll put some links to my blog at ecoshock.org as well. So, Paul, as we wrap up here, how do you see your role these days? You know, I, I like to keep on top of the most recent uh, peer-reviewed science on all aspects of the of the climate system. You know, my specific uh, things that I'm most passionate about uh, teaching to people and explaining are anything to do with the jet streams and changes in the jet streams, uh, because those have a huge impact. You know, those are the reason why extreme weather events are increasing in frequency, severity, and duration around the world. They're also happening in regions where they never used to happen before. You know, they're a direct result of the changes at the poles, mostly in the Arctic, but also more and more so in the Antarctic. You know, methane is a big concern. So, I, you know, I look at the overall risks from the climate system changes and try to make sure I, you know, cover sort of the latest and try to make sort of projections about, you know, what I can see happening. For example, as I mentioned, you know, when these atmospheric rivers were hitting BC, I thought, well, wait a minute, they used to be lower latitude in California. Now there's multiple ones in BC. What happens if they go right up to the Arctic? And sure enough, you know, I didn't expect that the next year they would go right up to the Arctic. And even Antarctica, they're getting worse in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, Australia is bearing the brunt of that. And now they've moved even further south into Antarctica. The heat waves in Antarctica and, and the Arctic are enormously significant for, for sea level rise, for future sea level rise, right? So there's a connection between all of these different parts of the climate system, and I try to delve into finding the connection and uh, edu- letting people know so that they can at least, you know, not be surprised uh, so much by things like, you know, I mean, these temperatures in yep. Antarctica, yeah. you know, not be surprised so much and say, oh, I know why this is happening. It's those atmospheric rivers. Um, so it allows you to kind of, uh, 
get a better handle on on the massive climate system changes that we're experiencing the consequences of now. And I always like to remind people, you know, the, the climate casino, where you live, we're all in the climate casino. If you have a bad luck in the climate casino, you could there can be torrential rains taking out your city, or you can have wildfires uh, making your life miserable for months on end in the summer, combined with heat waves and you know, all, all of these different things. So just trying to figure out what's happening. Stay on top of the future and the present, it turns out, uh, with Paul Beckwith from Ottawa, Canada. We've been speaking with climate scientist Paul Beckwith, and check him out at paulbeckwith.net. You can also find links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Paul, thanks for keeping going and joining us again today. Well, thank you, uh, Alex. It's always a, a great pleasure to have a good chat with you. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith. Let's get a perspective from European activism. For many years, Nicholas Herringer has been a voice for peace and climate justice. He organizes, publishes articles, connects people, and speaks to media. Nicholas is Associate Director for Movement Partnerships for 350.org. From France, Nicholas Herringer, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks a lot. Hello. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released its final report of three, and they say it is do-or-die time for climate this decade. We must act this decade. Could we call it their final warning? You know, they've been raising the alarm for many years. The IPCC was created in 1988, and since then, every single report that they published was raising the alarm. But yes, it's basically now or not never, because there will always be something to fight for, but it is now or never if you really want to, you know, create or maintain the conditions for a livable and peaceful future. So definitely, every everyone who's taking very seriously what the IPC writes and say. Uh, should stop doing what they do, should stop their business as usual, and really consider what can be done uh, for climate justice and peace. Well, this year's IPCC reports from the first and second working group were full of warnings based on the best of science. What was this third working group report intended to do, Nicholas? So the the third working group uh, from the IPCC is a working group looking at solutions. It is the one that is uh, aiming at helping us understand what the roadmap or what the pathway towards a world at 1.5 degrees of warming is. And uh, what this report has highlighted is that we can still get there. We can still make it. But in order to make it, we have to halve our emissions by 2030. So indeed, we only have a very short window of time you know, to keep the promise of the Paris Agreement, uh, which is basically the promise of a livable future or something that can maintain the conditions for peace, for social justice, across the world. Some activists were a little disappointed in this final effort. It was supposed to show us the best ways to avoid a climate catastrophe, but there's a lot of lawyer-like talk in it. All the code words are there, but it seems to lack a cohesive vision. Nicholas, what are your first impressions of this third working group report, and what is 350.org saying about it? I don't think that the role of the IPC is to provide us with a vision. The interest and the strength of the IPCC is that it is about the science. Right? The, IPC, the IPCC is not a research center. The IPCC is the global community of scientists 
telling us that these are the facts. This is what we know. This is what we should do. But the vision is something that we, the movement and the people, have to provide. The, the ITC is to some extent, you know, providing the foundation uh, to our common house. And everything that comes after, uh, the walls, the roof, the furniture, the rooms, etc., is for the movement and the people to provide. So our role is indeed, you know, to create that vision. And our vision is that, first, change will be people power. Change will, will come from below. Change won't come from world leaders. Change won't come from the fossil fuel companies because, uh, you know, we've, we've listened and waiting for them to act uh, for too many years and we don't have the time to wait again. So we need to be the ones creating that change. The other thing that we have in our vision is that it is very possible, uh, you know, to... We know that climate change is here to stay. That's not something we can argue over. Climate change is a reality and it will have dire consequences on our lives. And too many lives have already been lost. Yet every degree matters, every tenth of a degree matters, every tree, every species, every community that we can protect and save matters, and there was a fight. And so our vision is that we need, you know, to start this just transition towards a renewable future for all. We need to start it from, from below, at the community level. We need to make sure that uh, in order to, to go there, we cut ties with the fossil fuel industry and we develop that future in which we have ownership of a decision on energy. After interviewing a couple of hundred climate scientists in the last few years, it seems hard to believe we can hold global warming to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels. Uh, some people feel we're already past that in a way, or, or we're, we've, we're committed to going past that. Do you think world governments who sign off on this report are telling us the full truth about our climate situation? You know, the, after the Paris Agreement, the IPC was mandated to uh, write a, speci- a special report on 1.5. That report was published two years ago, and it said that it is still possible. Now, the possibility is tiny. It's clear that 1.5 is going to be hard to reach. And I would even add, you know, that up until very recently, we, including activists and people working in, in, in the climate movement, we believed that 1.5 was the so-called safety barrier, that a climate at 1.5 would be safe. It's not the case. The only safe level of warming is zero degrees. We live currently at a world at 1.1 degree of warming uh, compared to pre-industrial levels. And we already see seeing, you know, the many consequences, the mega fires, the drought, the storms. So, so we are seeing the consequences of global warming and we are not even at 1.5 yet. But this being said, there is a huge difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming. There is a huge difference between 2 degrees of warming and 3 degrees of warming. So maybe, yes, we won't uh, be able to keep global warming to 1.5, but if we can keep it to 1.6 instead of 3.1, that's a big difference. And the difference is not, you know, in terms of cosmetic or is not in terms of, you know, the landscape we're looking at. We are talking about millions of lives, billions of lives that would be saved. So... So the fight is worth, you know, fighting, even if maybe, yes, the horizon of one of five is too far away for us. Let's talk about activism in this new decade. When the pandemic struck, it was risky to bring crowds together for protests. We thought, well, we'll wait a year and then resume climate action. Now we still have the virus and the war in Ukraine is eating up most media time and public attention. The last two IPCC reports have gone almost unnoticed or or not got what they should have. 
This is the challenge. Nicholas, how can we work for climate action even during multiple other crises? It's not necessarily a problem, uh, but maybe actually the solution, the way we should look at it. I think in the climate movement, we've, we, we've said for decades now that this is about system change. And by saying this is about system change, we are saying that this crisis, this crisis has several dimensions. It's not just about the climate. It's not just about CO2 emissions. It's about social justice. It's about extractivism. It's about the imbalance of power in between nations. And so maybe the complexity that we're facing at the moment is actually the clue. We need to acknowledge that the situation is complex. We need to acknowledge that we need to act at different levels and that we could need to, you know, use our leverage wherever we can. And to that extent, I think that it is very interesting that, you know, the IPCC was awarded uh, the Peace Nobel Prize in 2007. And the IPC was about to approve uh, its, its Working Group 2 report at the moment where Russia invaded Ukraine. And I don't think it is a coincidence. I think that, you know, when, when the IPC was awarded the Peace Nobel Prize, what the Nobel Committee was basically saying is that the IPC is not just about science. It's not just about climate change. It is an institution of peace. And our movement is henceforth not just a movement for climate justice. It is the peace movement of our time. And so we basically need to work on our two you know, feet or two legs. There is one leg which is about halving emissions and then, you know, um, bending the curve and making sure that we can achieve zero emissions by, by 2050. But the other leg is, is to say that this is like getting rid of the fossil fuel industry, getting rid of, of, of coal, gas, and oil is not just about CO2 emissions. It is also about peace. It is also about justice. And so I think it is actually something that should encourage us to keep on mobilizing, to keep on working, to keep on you know, fighting for this just transition, because it's, it, it won't have only an impact on climate. It will have an impact on the geopolitics. It will have an impact on the possibility or not of peace to be installed. We hear predictions that global warming and climate disruption in the next decades could force large waves of refugees, millions of people searching for safer places to live. You recently published an article titled, We Must Turn Solidarity with Ukraine into the new normal for all refugees. What are you thinking there? We, we had a tendency, at least at the level of states, to see migration as a threat. And states were insisting on the fact, the fact that we cannot welcome everyone. It's not possible. And, and the war on Ukraine has actually proven that it is very possible. Right? Millions, two millions of refugees at least have been welcomed in Europe with open arms. And so this has created the example that we can actually be welcoming people who are forced to leave their country for whatever reason. The point, the challenge now, is to make sure that this is not just about the war on Ukraine, but that we can expand this solidarity to other refugees. And so my point in this piece was to say one of the best ways, one of the most powerful ways, ways that you know, social movements create change is by setting precedent, is by making the unprecedented happen. And this is exactly what we're seeing at the moment. So yes, the war on Ukraine is absolutely dramatic. Yes, too many lives have been lost because of the war machine. But at the same time, we are seeing an unprecedented level of solidarity which could pave way to what we, we fight for more generally than just about Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has brought new conditions that many thought impossible before, including a new look at the peril of depending on fossil fuels. This time, the activism spread even to the sports world and corporate behavior. 
What can the climate movement win from these big shifts in society? The first thing that we're winning is that, as I said, we are showing that it is possible. You know, everything that we were told was not possible, boycotting uh, Russian fossil fuels, uh, having, you know, the sports universe commit to political action or climate action. We were told that this was not possible. We were told that this was, that this was too complex, that, you know, what was at stake was, was too important. Um, yet we are seeing that it is actually possible. And that when we were told that this was not possible or that this was too complex, it was only because those in power had too many interests in maintaining the status quo. Now, thanks to, thanks, obviously not, but because of the war on Ukraine, those, like, the, the wealthiest and the one person and those leading us, the world leaders, have realized that it is in their interest to at least temporarily shift gears and listen to some of the demands that we used to make in the past and that we're not listening to. Now, our task is basically to make sure that we won't get back to normal. We won't get back to the business as usual um, that was in place prior to the war, but that this set of policies, this set of sanctions, this set of boycott measures will be implemented throughout the year and not just about Russia, but about the fossil fuel industry in general and about all the regimes that are, which are arming um, people's human rights. As a response to Russian forces in Ukraine and the rocky European dependence on Russian gas, many governments and big oil companies in the West announced major new projects to bring more fossil fuels out of the ground, not less. Canada, which talked so green after COP26, just announced approval of the Bay du Nord oil drilling project in the stormy ocean off Newfoundland and the East Coast. What can we do about this backsliding into the old and deadly energy exploits? Yeah, so I think what we're seeing here is just like the, those who have interest in the status quo just fighting back uh, for business as usual to come back to what it was before. Let's look at the situation very seriously. A new fossil fuel project that would be developed now will only start producing oil or gas in 10, 15 or 20 years. So we're actually not talking about projects whose aim would be to you know, help us get rid of our dependence on, fossil fuel, on Russian fossil fuels. We're just talking about companies using this as an opportunity to push for projects that would otherwise not be acceptable. This is just like we need to expose this as just being them seizing the moment as an opportunity to defend their own interest. And so what we need to do is to basically seize the moment as an opportunity to defend the climate justice and, and peace agenda. The Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, just tweeted this, Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels, end quote. So have you been called a dangerous radical, and what finally gives the UN head permission to speak such an awful truth? Yeah, I've been called dangerous radical. I've been arrested a few times by the police for just, you know, raising the alarm, for just, you know, um, doing what the IPCC is telling us to do. And, and, and so I think that, yes, having the UN Secretary General, you know, completely change um, the lens and language on us activists is really important because it gives us legitimacy. And I think a lot of what we do, you know, we, we at Swifty and in the climate movement in general are trying to make the case for what we call climate disobedience or civil disobedience applied to climate. And one of the key elements and ingredients of, of, of civil disobedience is to get states to recognize a state of necessity, which 
which is basically the idea that, yes, we are not always respecting the law. We are sometimes, you know, trespassing on ground that we are not allowed to trespass. But we are doing it because the company on which ground we are trespassing is not respecting the Paris Agreement or, you know, international agreements or, you know, national laws on climate. And, and, and the point uh, of the state of necessity is to show that this infringement of the law that we are making as activists is actually much smaller and, and, and less harmful than the larger and bigger infringement from the company. And, and having uh, the UN Secretary General say that, uh, say what he said, is basically telling, yes, these people, they're absolutely right, and what they do is actually uh, respecting the spirit of the law. So this is really important. This is, even I would say, game-changing. In December, Italy announced their super bonus plan to pay the entire cost of retrofitting a home, even a rented one, to be energy efficient, including solar power. Germany has guaranteed high solar prices for a long time, and I believe I heard France requires solar on new homes. But here in North America, we have nothing to encourage people to install green energy. Nicholas, why do you think European governments are so far ahead of North America on renewables? One of the reasons might be that, as opposed to Canada and the U.S., we heavily rely on fossil fuel imports. And so we have probably states in Europe have maybe an additional incentive to develop renewable energy, which is related to energy security. This is maybe the one thing that is missing in North America. However, I think this might happen very fast as well in North America for various reasons. The first reason is obviously the prices, right? The energy price crunch is going to affect everyone. And we soon realize that renewable energy has this almost magical element, which is that its marginal cost is, is close to zero. Once you've installed solar panel or wind turbine, then the electricity that it produces costs nothing because it doesn't depend on you know any complex technology and human and technological intervention. It's just nature helping us produce energy. That's the, the first reason. The second reason is that we realize also very soon that the more local the energy production is, the safer and the better it is. And so I think it's just a matter of maybe, you know, weeks, months, hopefully, and this is one of the role of the movement is to speed this up. The pace at which the transition will happen is only a matter of political will. I think this is one of the key lessons of, you know, the last few weeks of, of development. This is Radio EcoShock. We are speaking with our guest Nicholas Herringer from 350.org. And I want to ask, is climate activism still alive? From your post at 350.org, could you tell us about a couple of actions you've heard about in various countries? The first thing that I think is worth mentioning is that the, the largest demonstration for peace and solidarity with the Ukrainian people in Europe have been organized in Germany by the climate movement. And so, I said earlier, it is not a coincidence. The climate movement is the peace movement of our time. And there were like hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Berlin, Hamburg, and other German cities asking for solidarity with the Ukrainian people, asking for a strict embargo on Russian uh, fossil fuels. So that's, that's the first thing that, that has really been striking and amazing over the last few weeks. Uh, another thing that I think is worth mentioning is there is a mobilization at the moment in Uganda and Tanzania to fight against the East African crude oil pipeline. This is a pipeline that would start in Uganda, so in the middle of the south of the African uh, continent, and would go all the way east uh, to the shores of Tanzania. 
And, and this is the longest crude oil pipeline being developed at the moment. And crude oil has this specificity that it can only be remain fluid if it is maintained uh, at a certain temperature. And so this pipeline will actually be heated. So we're basically talking about Total and other companies building a pipeline with, say, a heating system which would aim at maintaining the old fluid. This is a real climate bomb. And there are communities now fighting in Tanzania against this project. And these communities are saying, in solidarity with Ukraine, we want Total Energy to leave Russia, but we also want Total to leave Tanzania and Uganda. And we're fighting together with our you know, Ukrainian friends and allies in the same direction. And I think this is really powerful to see these types of solidarity and cross-messaging emerge in such dark times. In the old days, Greenpeace would get media attention by hanging people off buildings or locking themselves to the rails uh, to stop a dangerous cargo. The media somewhat became bored with climate action and they stopped reporting on some of it. But how are activists bypassing those media empires to reach masses of people directly? It's a very good question. I think it's worth maybe reminding ourselves that before the pandemic in September 2019, we just had organized the largest protest in contemporary history on climate. More than 7 million people took the streets uh, in September 2019. Greta Thunberg was invited to the UN General Assembly, and, and so there was a global day of action uh, at the end of September, and it was, yeah, the biggest global mobilization on climate, and it was probably actually the second biggest mobilization, uh, global mobilization ever, whatever the issue is about. So we were in a context where masses were joining the climate movement. And there was still momentum. I think I remember that, you know, after this day of action was over, the first thing we all said is, this is just the beginning. The only reason why this has stopped is, is the pandemic in lockdown. And so I think it is our role now to try and find the sparkle that would bring people back onto the streets massively. And one of the, the things that has, you know, driven people to the streets is access to energy. Right? Back in 2019, if you look at what happened in Chile, in Yemen, in Lebanon, in Algeria, or in France with the Yellowest Movement, there, there, there was a global wave of protest. And most of these protests were related somewhat to the issue of access to energy. And now that we are seeing these prices increase, this price crunch on energy, and the consequences of the war on Ukraine on the price of oil, the price of gas, and obviously also the price of food, we might very well you know, be at the very beginning of a new wave of protest. Tell us about the International People's Platform for Climate Justice. What is that? So uh, when the IPCC published its uh, Working Group 3 report, we at 350 launched the IPCJ. So it is the International People's Platform on Climate Justice, and our ambition is to complement the work of the International Panel on Climate Change. The idea with this platform is to have a hub where people can tell stories, three different types of stories. The first type of stories is stories about how climate change impacts us. Because the IPC is very good at, you know, coming up with figures and science and data, but its role is not to come up with stories. Its role is not to focus on the human angle. And so we want to shed light on how impacted we are by climate change. The second type of story is aimed at pivoting from a focus on the impacts of climate change on people to the impact that we, the people, have on climate change. And we want to shed light on our agency, on our capacity to change the course of things. So we want to highlight stories of resistance, ensure that, you know, 
throughout the world, people are fighting against the fossil fuel industry, against projects, infrastructures that would eventually destroy the climate, destroy the environment. And we want to list our many successes. Because actually, the climate movement have, has won a lot. We've blocked so many pipelines. We've not blocked so many coal power plants. We've divested trillions from the fossil fuel industry. And, and sometimes we, we, we tend to forget how powerful we are. So we want to show this agency that we have by resisting. But we also, and this is the third, third type of story, we also want to show that we have agency by, by being creative. It's not just by blocking that we have agency, but by being creative. And so we want to show stories of people-powered solutions, how at the community level, and, and sometimes in the very same regions that are affected by climate change, people are organizing to develop alternatives to the fossil fuel industry. Small-scale energy schemes, small-scale uh, energy consum consumption and production schemes that are paving way to a 100% uh, renewable future. So this is the project with the IPCG, which is also uh, articulated to, together with an international panel of citizen experts. So we have, we have people like Naomi Klein, uh, we have the Indian writer Amitav Ghosh, we have leaders from the climate movement from all over the world uh, who have agreed to come together on a panel. And the role of the panel will, will be to, you know, push the platform, identify stories that are worth, worth being telling, and hopefully also every now and then come up, come up with a people's assessment report on climate justice. Well, listeners, you can find all these ideas for real climate action from around the world at ourclimateimpact.org, ourclimateimpact.org. Nicholas, the latest IPCC report says we are in a race to make very big changes to all levels of society in every corner of the world. Our missions need to peak by 2025, and then greenhouse gas emissions need to be drastically reduced by 2030. So far, we don't see any of that happening. Greenhouse gas emissions in 2021 set another new record. So honestly, personally, do you think humanity can avoid two or three degrees warming by the end of this century? Yes, absolutely. The IPC focuses a lot on tipping points, and tipping points in a very negative way, right? In, 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 the, in the vision of the IPCC, the focus is on these moments where we reach a level where, you know, like, for instance, the melting of the ice cap is so big that it will then trigger other forms of change uh, for worse. Now, I think with the IPCC, we want to focus on a different type of tipping points, social tipping points which are the level after which, you know, in society once enough people have changed their behavior, when enough people have adopted a different set of values, change is inevitable. And it's been proven by different types of research that this social tipping point is probably around a quarter of the population. When a quarter of the population has a new set of values or, you know, new different behaviors in terms of consumption, then change becomes inevitable. But when you are... 20, 21, 22% of the population, you might not see the change happen. This is the nature of its ping point, is that it's only visible afterwards, once you've reached the moment where, where you tip. And, and our assumption, our belief, is that we're very close to that tipping point. So this is the hope. The hope is that, you know, we might very well have already changed systems, yet we're not seeing it because we are just in the midst of the change. But, but in a few years, we will realize that, yes, we had reached that moment. So it may not be a long, long battle over years or decades. We might be surprised by a revolution or a tipping point in our lives, do you think? 
Yes and no. Yes, uh, completely. I think we might very well witness, you know, how rapidly things can change once a few elements, a few dominoes have started uh, to fall. No, in the sense that I don't think there will be a moment where we can say, okay, this is over, we won. That won't happen. You know, there will always be uh, room for mobilization. There will always be the necessity for people to fight. So there, w- there won't be a moment where we can say, this is the end of history, we won, period. You know, this is going to last, especially because, and, and this is what the IPC is saying in Working Group 2 report, climate change is here, and it's here to last. So uh, our lives, our present and our future are impacted by climate change. We, we won't get back to normal. So there will be, you know, lives impacted by our overconsumption and combustion uh, and extraction of fossil fuels, which is also why, besides everything that we're talking about in terms of, you know, change strategy, we have to hold the fossil fuel industry accountable. We have to make them pay. They have to pay for the damage they've created. They have to pay for the reparations of the damage they've created. This is not another important leg uh, of the work we're talking about and of the fight for climate justice. Nicholas, as we finish our time together, what will you be working on next? There are now conversations um, happening around the possible Global Day of Action for Climate Justice and Peace. A Global Day of Action which would officially, you know, in the movement, connect the dots between how we fight against the war on Ukraine and how we fight at the same time to implement, implement the recommendations from the IPC. So we have a series of meetings uh, within the next, next few days and hopefully... Uh, you know, through a big alliance and coalition of organizations from civil society across the world, we might align on a global day of action probably early May. And hopefully this would be, you know, maybe the beginning of this global wave of protest uh, that I've mentioned uh, earlier on. From 350.org in Europe, we've been speaking with Nicholas Herringer. Listeners can get climate action stories and learn from bright minds around the world at ourclimateimpact.org. And of course, you should plug into 350.org on a bunch of different social media platforms. I will put links to follow up in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.org. Nicholas, thank you so much for sharing time with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Ecoshock.